Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. A kingdom, a government, a system that has no end. And as we look to that, help us understand our place in that as we go from learning about our past to looking forward to what we can do in the future to make a kingdom, a system that has no end, that glorifies you, our Father who art in heaven. Amen. How are you doing this morning? It is so nice to be back. When I talk to people about uh, some of the things that I do, when I mention this, they're like, what church is that? <laughs> I said, you guys really talk about these things? And uh, I was very impressed with the series on Judaism and Islam and Christianity and came to a couple, three sessions or so. And um, I think it inspired me to think about, well, where do you go from there? And then um, when Dan said something about the Reformation, in the celebration of the Reformation, I thought, well, I don't know if I really want to talk about that. I, it seems to me that I want to talk about the Reformation that should be happening now. So I thought, why should it be something you celebrate happening 500 years ago when it be something that's happening now? So, <clears throat> but I, I didn't want to look at it in kind of the terms that, it's, that some things are happening now. I really th think that it's time for the church to be more careful about how they think about issues. And um, because I, I think sometimes uh, people see it in very black and white terms, right? Someone speaks the right language, or they say the right things, or they connect themselves to the right programs, and somehow that person's the person that we want to represent us. And I think it's more complicated than that. So. <laughs> Then I had the difficult step, though, of thinking that that means I'm going to have to talk about some tough topics. <laughs> the first one being slavery. And, you know, I'm not the kind of person who really wants to talk about this. I was talking to someone yesterday about this talk, kind of just doing a pre-talk talk of this talk. And uh, she said, this is really depressing. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I know. But... It's not, my goal is, is not depressing. My goal is to think about, in very positive terms, some depressing realities. Does that make sense? Because I know that historically the church has stood up a number of times, not to mention the whole issue of slavery, has stood up a number of times in history. But I also want to look at the ways that the same kinds of arguments that supported the practice of slavery are still being made across the United States um, and still being maintained in different forms. So slavery may be disappearing, but some of the reasoning behind slavery is still there, and I want to look at that. So it is a little depressing, but I w uh, will do my best to make sure that by the end of this talk, and you'll see on the slides, I have all kinds of resources so that you can uh, make a difference, particularly I'm going to relate everything to the Presbyterian Church. So these will all be resources available to you. Uh, 
as part of the Presbyterian Church to be involved in all the issues that I'll be talking about. Okay, so I decided to call this time to reflect, time to react, and time to stand up, and I'm purposely imitating a little bit Martin Luther's, here I stand, I can do no other. And I think that was a brave statement, but I, I, I wanna think about what would the 95 thesis look like now? What would he be talking about now? What would he say about the church? And of course, the church is, okay, I'm going backwards. I have to learn how to use this thing. All right, so the first topic I wanna talk about is slavery, and in the coming weeks, we'll talk about violence and war, about uh, sexual abuse, about gender, and about politics. None of those things do I really want to talk about. <laughs> Who does? But I think to be informed is half of the process, and then the rest of the process is to do something. So I'm thinking uh, in order to be reformers, you have to be informed. Okay, so everything seems to be happening but the right thing. Okay, so slavery is not just an issue from history. 143 years after the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, 60 years after Article 4 of the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights banned slavery in the slave trade worldwide, there are more slaves than any other time in human history, 27 million. I've read other sources that say up to 40 million. Now, I don't know how you count this, I don't know how they figure this out, but that's an astronomical figure no matter how you count it. Today's slavery focuses on big profits and cheap lives. It is not about owning people like before, but about using them as completely disposable tools for making money. Human trafficking has become the second most profitable industry after drug trafficking. And just to share some of the reality, this is a headline from a few years ago, 2013. FBI Assistant Director Ronald Hosko announced Monday the rescue of 105 sex trafficking victims. The youngest child to be rescued was nine years old. And since the last time I was here, um, I became a grandfather. <laughs> so this issue means even more than before. In 2013, here's another map that says about 30 million, and you can see where the main places are. The darker colors, the darkest colors, have the highest percentage of slave population. You can see uh, the United States barely shows, but that doesn't mean we're off the, off the map. Per capita is a very low rate of slavery in the United States, 0.2%. Uh, One in every 5,000 people, that adds up to about six, 60,000 slaves in the United States. And when we're talking slavery here, uh, we're talking about people who are abducted and forced into usually prostitution. It could be pornography, prostitution. So what I wanna do today is talk about what the scriptures say about slavery and how Christians justified its practices. That's the depressing part. But part two, how do Christians resist its practices? Uh, and also, I put down here uh, a really good book on how Christians justify the practices. Actually, it was justified amongst Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Yeah. Did you say that the majority of slavery around the world is sex trafficking? Or S yeah. Just in the United States? 
around the world. And um, what about these people in North Korea? <laughs> yeah. Um, That's a different kind of slavery. This is a different kind of slavery. Yeah, so I don't, you know, if you started admitting things like that, like a, a highly repressive regime, that's, that's a whole other problem. Uh, what are the church policies, Catholic and Protestant, towards slavery currently? Um, or what were the policies? And then what is the church saying and doing now? I was talking to my students the other day about uh, the, the need to study history. And a lot of people say, well, if you don't study history, you'll repeat it and those kind of cliches. But to me, it's more like this. You are a product of your history. Everything that you are is always right there, isn't it? Well, it's the same in the United States. We're a part of our history. A lot of people will say, well, you know, racism is over, blah, 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 or it's, it's better. And I'm like, yes, but it's all still here. The echoes of it, the policies, the attitudes are all still here. So a lot of the things that were part of slavery, even though slavery has been officially abolished, a lot of the arguments and the points of view are still there. So the Hebrew Bible brings up slavery in a number of passages, mostly in the law books like Leviticus, Exodus, Deuteronomy. Um, and it says, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You make slaves of them, but not your brothers, the people of Israel. You shall not rule one another ruthlessly. So they could, uh, official policy was you could enslave anyone, non-Jew. But you can also see that the fact that in Exodus there are laws about regulating Jewish slavery <laughs> wasn't exactly a consistent view. Now these are the rules you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he, if he comes in married, his wife will go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children. I will not go free, then the slave remains. Exodus, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies, uh, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he's not avenged, for the slave is his money. Exodus 21, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of the slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So some people would argue that although uh, the Jews allowed slavery, they at least put these kinds of restrictions on it to keep it from being overly hideous, and if, if someone caused injury, that they would be responsible. That doesn't really justify the practice itself. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. So these very, very minor kindnesses, I think, saying that, well, she's a slave, so it's not really her fault. I'm like, really? Deuteronomy, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. It's kind of unclear what that passage means. Does that mean that now they're your slave? Or does that mean that if they run away, you can keep somebody else a slave? 
or do you free them? Do, are they free? It's kind of unclear from the passage, and I'm sure it got interpreted in many ways. Actual practice by the time of the fall of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah is writing, because Jeremiah is one of the last prophets before Jerusalem is completely destroyed. Um, by the time of the fall of Jerusalem, it's clear that the Jews not only had slaves, but virtually ignored prohibitions on owning other Jews. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with the people of Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male or female, so no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. So basically, Jeremiah is saying, well, one of the reasons we're in so much trouble with God is because we've enslaved each other. So set them free, which also means that it was a common practice to own Jewish slaves. Now, one would hope things would get better in the New Testament. Anybody think it does? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Ephesians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he shall receive back from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven. There is no partiality with him. So, even though there are restrictions, there's no disavowal of the practice, no resistance of the practice. First Timothy, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So this kind of lets you know why it is that Paul and others were writing this. They were saying that, um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like that pick your issues thing. It's complicated enough that we're Christians, but we don't want to be seen as rebellious. I'm kind of like, why not? <laughs> I don't agree. I think it was a mistake because, because of these sentences, thousands of years of slavery. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. It's almost like uh, there's a little script. It's almost exactly the same wording every time. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's from Colossians. This is from 1 Peter. So those were from Paul. This is from Peter. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So there's not even any kind of qualification. You should serve the master, period. Slaves are to be submissive. This is Titus. Submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, there is this idea that somehow through the witness of the slave that perhaps the master would become a Christian. But at the same time, you're seeing here that it's basically saying be a good slave. Right? Be a good house slave. Be a good yes sir, no ma'am, kind of slave. And to argue that somehow that's going to change the situation, uh, I'm not sure I'm buying that. First Corinthians, were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Wow. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a freedman 
As a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, who is free was called a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. Okay, so there's this kind of this pun, this play, that free men are slaves of Christ, and slaves are free men. But not in reality. <laughs> you know, like, okay, I don't know how that would sound if I were a slave, but I'm imagining I would not feel too encouraged by that. You're like, okay, I'm free, but I'm a slave. Let's, let's get to the reality of this. I have no rights as a human being. So, to summarize... Clearly, neither the Hebrew nor Christian Bible offer any real challenge to slavery, and mostly they seem to support the practice. And they were seen as supporting the practice all the way up until through the 1600s, through the 1700s, and gradually in the 16 and 1700s, as slavery began to ramp up in the world, some Christians began to resist. But it took a while, it took until the 1800s before there were significant challenges to the practice of slavery. So that's 1,800 years. The Christian idea that we are all slaves of Christ even served as a covert justification for the practice, as well as encouraging Christians who were enslaved to become obedient slaves. Now we're gonna see this same kind of argument used with women, so we'll talk about that later. If you're an obedient woman to your husband, then maybe he'll be saved. Maybe he'll be saved. <laughs> we'll get to that later. But I think it's interesting that the arguments for women's submission are very, very similar to the arguments for slave submission. Such verses could not help but support the practice of slavery when it became widespread in the period of colonization. One of the things I wanted to talk about was what did the reformers say about slavery, but slavery didn't really exist in the time of the reformers. They were in the 1500s. Slavery didn't really get established until the 1600s um, with the colonization and Paris uh, moving into Af the west coast of Africa. And um, up to that time, though, there was slavery. Slavery was being practiced all over Europe, um, but it usually wasn't the way we think of slavery. It wasn't African slavery. The only recourse for those who wanted to resist, 1700 to 1800 years later, who wanted to condemn slavery was to focus on passages that applied general principles against the practice. So they couldn't win on a face-to-face, scripture-by-scripture argument. There weren't any. There weren't any. No one ever said, even Jesus never said slavery is wrong or anything like that. Nobody could point to it. So you had to start thinking, well, what are some general principles of Christianity? And of course, slavery violates about every general principle I can think of. But here's a good one, and, and many abolitionists and reformers look to this one, because this is when Jesus begins his ministry, the first thing he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. I wish there were just one story of Jesus setting free a slave. If you'd have just had one, <laughs> it might have made a difference. Unfortunately, Jesus never commented on the practice of slavery directly, and this language is usually taken sort of metaphorically, spiritually. Galatians, 
This is the, probably the most powerful statement in the New Testament, and yet it again was taken spiritually. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If there were ever a verse that could have changed the history of the world, that was it. Right? Wow. That's radical. That's crazy. That's crazy talk back then. (laughs) Basically, this is the quality of all human beings, isn't it? In a nutshell. Because to him, there were only two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, right? You were either a Jew or not. And, uh, but he says in Christ, no distinction, right? Did the church take this as a rallying cry for the next 1,800 years? No. It amazes me. Like, there it is. The first time I read this scripture, my, you know, I got the little exclamation point over my head. Like, this is crazy radical but it's just kind of buried in Galatians (laughs) and taken again as, well, it's symbolic, but, you know, we're living a reality, so you still have to obey your masters, right? And women still are submitting to men. That's the reality of it, even though spiritually, no different. I'm like, well, I don't get that. So unfortunately, the verse is taken spiritually, and it was not perceived as a clarion call for social change. And amazingly enough, it wasn't. I don't, I don't think it ever was. All right. I told you it was going to be a little depressing. The reasons why Christians supported slavery. Now, to me, that's a built-in oxymoron. Christians should never support slavery. And yet, they did. And when things got tough... They supported it more and more, and it wasn't just the South. It was uh, all over the place. The South was more vociferous because their economy was based on it. But they offered biblical reasons. Abraham, the father of faith, and all the patriarchs held slaves, and God didn't say he set them free, so therefore. Canaanham's son was made a slave to his brothers. We'll talk about that passage in just a minute. The so-called curse of Ham. Yes, you know this? which is somehow telescoped into like Ham was black or Canaan was black, and I'm like, what? Like, no evidence for this, and yet it was used as a justification for, I don't know, how many hundreds of years. The Ten Commandments mentioned slavery twice, showing God's implicit acceptance of it. Slavery was widespread throughout the Roman world, and Jesus never spoke against it. Well, he didn't speak against a lot of things like heroin, but I think we could still get some principles, but the fact they didn't speak about slavery. And the Apostle Paul specifically commanded slaves to obey their masters. That was probably one of the most powerful and damning ones. Paul even returned a runaway slave, Philemon, to his master. All right, so the Canaanite defense is this really bizarre story from the Old Testament. Right after the ark lands, Noah begins to plant things, and he gets drunk. Like, what? When people tell me things like, I don't read the Bible because it just cleans everything up, I'm like, you haven't read the Bible. (laughs) This is a ridiculous and embarrassing story. (laughs) 
Moses gets trashed and falls asleep naked. This is right after the big moment with the rainbow and the sacrifice and I will not destroy the world by fire. You what? Said Moses, you meant Noah. Noah, I'm sorry, Noah. Thank you. <laughs> You're like, time out, time out. <laughs> no, okay. But he gets drunk and one of his sons, Ham, sees him drunk and uh, kind of snickers to his brothers. You know, like dad's drunk in the tent. And they go and cover him up and then Ham, it, somehow Noah wakes up, Noah, did I say Noah? Yeah, Noah wakes up and he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Okay, so the original story was really just an explanation of why Israel felt like they could enslave the Canaanites. Yes, it had nothing to do with being black or slaves or Africans or anything. It had to do with a justification for why it is they enslaved some Semitic people. Yes, and uh, because they were. Okay, that was the original justification for it, if there's a justification at all. But it was a widely held interpretation part of the Noah story of the Bible that Ham was black, and therefore black people was, were cursed with eternal slavery. These racist interpretations are used by white supremacists today. Yes, you can still find these online. And believe me, I did, because I do that kind of thing. Other reasons why Christians support slavery. Social reasons, not just biblical. Just as women are called to play a subordinate role, slaves are stationed by God in their place. I don't think that argument would fly much anymore, but it flew back then. Slavery is God's means of protecting and providing for an inferior race. Even the punishment of Cain, there we go, that story again. Abolition would lead to slave uprisings, bloodshed, anarchy, consider the mob rule of terror during the French Revolution. More reasons. Are you ready for this one? Wow. Some things you read and you're just like, you know, you just want to weep. Slavery removes people from a culture that worships the devil, practice witchcraft and sorcery and other evils. Slavery brings heathens to a Christian land where they can hear the gospel. Christian masters provide religious instruction for their slaves. It gets worse. Under slavery, people are treated with kindness, as many northern visitors can attest. And lastly, it is slaveholders' own interest to treat their slaves well. Slaves are treated more benevolently than our workers in oppressive northern factories. Wow, these arguments were actually made, and hold on to your hats, some of them were actually made by Presbyterians. Yikes. Other arguments were made by other Presbyterians. <laughs> All right. Political reasons. Christians are to obey civil authorities. Right? And if the civil authorities decide slavery is okay, then yeah. it's okay. And those authorities permit and protect slavery. The church should concentrate on spiritual matters, not political ones. Yeah. Heard that argument. Still hear that kind of argument. Those who support evolution are, in James Thorn H. Thornwell's words, atheists, socialists, communists, and <laughs> Republicans. Okay. And one of the justifications, I found this on a student devotional guide, this verse from Romans. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Okay. I don't know how that fits with Jesus when he said, give to, what? Whose image is on the coin? <laughs> yeah. Give him that. Give to God your image, right? Whose image is on you? I love that he did that and never said it. Remember my talks on like Jesus' rhetoric, how clever he was, he'd always not say something? He didn't say, you're the image of God. This is the image of Caesar. Give him the coin. Give yourself to God. He just said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, God's what is God's. But Christians, I think, got conservative and thought, well, you know, we need to support the government. We don't want to get killed. We don't want to be called an unofficial religion. Okay, conservative, uh, maybe not the right word, because some, uh, I, I don't mean to allow that. I just mean they, they pulled back thinking um, that it was best to support the government rather than resist. All right, also some fun facts. What bothers me about this culture is that it developed in such a way that these kinds of justifications led even black people to do what? Enslave other black people. Henry Louis Gates, I know you're familiar with him. He's, he does remarkable work in all kinds of things. He does point out that many freed Negro slaves would buy other slaves in order to kind of create free communities or at least protect them from white masters. Um, but he said there were instances, however, in which free Negroes had real economic interest in the institution of slavery and held slaves in order to improve their economic status. Many free blacks slave owners fought for the South. All right, I'm hitting the wrong button. In 1830, the year most carefully studied by Carter Woodson, 13.7% of the black population was free. Of these, 3,776 free Negroes owned about 12,907 slaves out of a total of 2 million slaves owned in the United States. <coughs> now, that's a small percentage, but again, big problem. The culture was so strong that guess who else owned slaves? Native Americans. Fun facts from history. Creek, Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole. The five trials participated in child and race-based slavery. You can see a picture up there of the family with their slaves. The decision to engage in chattel slaveholding resulted in a conscious and deliberate choice on the part of Indian slaveholders to embrace racial ideology that degraded blackness and associated exclusively with enslavement. You know, when people are talking about systematic racism in the country and I hear people saying that doesn't exist, I'm like, hmm. Hmm. Does this just go away? <laughs> this attitude that it's okay to enslave a certain group of people? All right, adopting race-based slavery provided the most efficient way to maintain an increasingly tenuous hold on political and cultural autonomy in the face of an aggressive American expansion while pursuing self-interest, economic, and diplomatic goals. So it actually, owning slaves was a ticket to social status and wealth. And you can imagine, in the South, those are tribes mostly in the South, that would have been a way to kind of 
keep the wrath of <laughs> the country away, like we're fellow slave owners. Okay, so am I trying to say that all black people are all Indians? No, not at all. But there was a segment, and what the point is, is that if you have a culture that allows and promotes it, then even people that you would think would know better get involved in it. Still happening today. That <coughs> I actually had that on the slide, and I thank you for reminding me. <laughs> no, it was on that previous slide, and I just forgot to mention it. Yes, Africans themselves practiced slavery. A lot of the slaves were purchased through Africans selling other Africans. Um, it was a way to even out tribal conflicts, um, you know, to get rid of some of the leadership of, of tribes that are hostile to your tribe. It was a ways to make money. So, you know, the world isn't perfect. Right. And, and um, right. So slavery was already well established in the African subcontinent. It was, it was established among Muslims. It, it was not, the world was not a stranger to it. The, the thing that happened was just this two million, <laughs> um, this astronomical amount of people who were taken out of their country and enslaved somewhere else. That hadn't happened before. People, you know, had, had had maybe one or two slaves, that sort of thing, as status symbols in Africa. Indians also enslaved other Indians before the white people got here. So slavery was kind of a worldwide practice. My point is, once you create a culture where black people are considered just, it's okay, then you even have Indians and other, other black people enslaving them. Okay, so justification of slavery echoed the New Testament scriptures, not in their lack of challenge to slavery, but also in their reasoning. Social stability, that it was a political issue, obedience to civil authority, even ironically, our duty to welcome people to Christianity, no matter what status. I can't help but think that's ironic. We're, we're helping to convert these people. I'm like, okay, well, by enslaving them, Though slavery was a part of both, there's my slide, <laughs> of both Native American and African traditions, in the, U, in the U.S., slave ownership was a clear path to status, wealth, and cultural acceptance. All right. So, for a long time before the Reformation, of course, the Catholic Church was the church. So, what were they saying about all of this? Well, it's kind of tricky. The Catholic Church opposed slavery and the slave trade. Did you all know that? They opposed both of them. But they allowed it if you were an enemy of Christ. You couldn't enslave anyone unless they were a, quote, enemy of Christ. The Catholic Church basically meant Muslims. Maybe Jews. But they certainly didn't mean people who were not at war with Christians. Because certain, you know, even back then, there were wars between Muslims and Christians, and they were saying it's okay, and they were saying it's okay to enslave people in that situation, but none in the other situation. But of course, people are people, aren't they? Once someone was given that enemies of Christ thing, <laughs> it's like, okay, if they're not Christian, fair game. So the Portuguese, Spanish, all of them decided, well, what the heck? The Catholic kings, 
didn't have any problem enslaving people. And if you know some of your history about the New World, there were people like Bartolome de las Casas, who, who was a priest, and he was highly offended and thought it was horrible. He was right there at the beginning when Spanish enslavement was beginning. And he spoke out vociferously. Um, so there were priests, there were uh, Catholic, individual Catholics who stood up, for, but the system was against them. The popes issued bulls forbidding the enslavement of Africans and Native Americans who were not at war with Christians, or the, on the mere pretext that they were not followers of Christ, but Catholic kings generally ignored them, and the popes really didn't do much about it. All right, Pope John Paul II is trying to address slavery as an issue now, what we're calling human trafficking. The trade in human persons constitutes a shocking offense against human dignity and grave violation of fundamental human rights. Already the Second Vatican Council pointed out to slavery, prostitution, selling women and children, disgraceful working conditions where people are treated as instruments of gain rather than free and responsible persons as infamies which poison human society to base their perpetrators and constitute a supreme dishonor to the creator. Situations are a front to fundamental values which are shared by all cultures and all peoples values rooted in the very nature of the human person. Who can deny that the victims of this crime, often the poorest and most defenseless members of the human family, the least of our brothers and sisters. I like that they brought in that scripture, right? Whatever you do to the least of these, you've done to me. This disturbing tendency to treat prostitution as a business industry not only contributes to the trade in human beings, but self-evidence of a growing tendency to detach freedom from the moral law and to reduce the rich mystery of human sexuality to a mere commodity. And you'll see that the modern responses always include the language of um, the Enlightenment, right? The idea that there are fundamental human rights. Because the church really didn't have clear passages stating things like that. All right, what were Protestants doing? And I'm looking at Protestants <coughs> in the United States. Uh, we all know the Quakers and the Methodists were both abolitionists, uh, early opponents of American slavery and the slave trade. Um, and that famous picture, you've seen the one where all the slaves are in the slave ship, just packed in, that was released by these groups. Free black people, often rejected by their fellow Christians, founded churches of their own. This is another one of the ironies just embarrassing moments in history. That even freed blacks who wanted to be Christians had to establish their own churches, their own denominations. Now, I will admit, you know, at that time, it made, it made some sense in, in terms of comfort level amongst the races, but maybe comfort level would have changed some if people would have dared to have mixed churches. But even when I went to college, uh, I had... <coughs> One of my teachers was a pastor of a church and he was given a black church and people said, oh, we're sorry. He was a white man. People said they were sorry. He's like, this is fantastic. I'm in Bowling Green, Kentucky. I'm a white pastor of a black church. <laughs> and I used to go there when I was an undergrad and it was fantastic. All the others were black and it was quite a different experience for me to be in a church that was mixed. 
But this didn't really happen, so we ended up with African-American Methodist and, and the Bapt African Baptist Church. The Baptists and Presbyterians were largely pro-slavery. Pro now, that's, we'll see in a minute that's not completely true. Uh, until well into the 1800s when they split into the northern and southern camps. All right, I also found this page. And I don't, I, I, I'm a scholar and I like to be respectful. And I like to be respectful as a teacher of this class. But sometimes I just see websites that bother me so much, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna see if it bothers you. Well, I think it will. <coughs> this is what a modern website said, and it's called the Reformation homepage. Yes, a Reformationist homepage, something like that. It's a beautiful page. It's really quite impressive looking. And uh, there's a list of contributing pastors, and I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. Because I was looking for what, what did Reformationists say about this line. Okay. They said this. This is about the curse of Canaan thing, right? As a judicial ruling, God told Israel to dispose of the people in the land. They were either to kill them, or in some cases, enslave them. The Canaanites had already lost all their rights and went under God's judgment. There was no justification for arbitrary, arbitrary chattel slavery in the Bible. Okay, I'm with you so far. The kind which we knew in antebellum times. In fact, the slavery which kidnapped people and sold them as property was punishable by death. But then they go on. No, they were only to kill or enslave under God's direct verbal orders. Remember, he is God, so his judicial ruling is more than just any human court has ever been since he's known all of our crimes perfectly. So when Israel killed people, they were simply acting as God's hand, speeding up the death sentence we all justly deserve. It's, it's down there if you want to look it up, but what bothered me is not whether or not this is like legit or sponsored, what, what bothered me is that the fact that it's even there. It bothers me that <coughs> I think that's really, really reckless language. Isn't it? I know. You can imagine a reader reading that and saying, well, God has told me. You know, I mean, how could you make an argument against that? So I think what I'm trying to show is this kind of racist language that justified slavery is still being taught and still being promoted sometimes by perhaps well-meaning websites. <coughs> All right, so what did the Presbyterians do? You want to hear about Presbyterians? <laughs> <laughs> it is good. On the left side, it's really good. <laughs> All right, 1797, are you ready? That's pretty early, right? 1797. Uh, England it outlaws slavery in like 1803, something like that. So a little ahead of the curve, a little ahead of England. Uh, Senate of New York and Philadelphia proclaims universal liberty and the abolition of slavery to be the goals of Presbyterians everywhere. In the 1818 Senate, they agreed, they all voted on this and agreed that slavery is a sin, that it's utterly inconsistent with the laws of God, it's a gross violation of sacred rights of nature, again, the language of the Enlightenment. Irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel. See, the only argument Christians have, spirit and principles, not specific passages. 
And it's the duty of all Christians to abolish it. But things got dicey. 1861, as you probably know, being Presbyterian, it split, right, into a southern and northern. Weren't they reunified, though? Haven't they been been reunified? Because Presbyterian headquarters, believe it or not, is in Louisville, Kentucky, where I'm from. So I was a little up on... To Louisville, okay, yeah, because that was a big deal then, because Louisville was like, money. <laughs> headquarters moved here, we got all kinds of Presbyterians. <laughs> and there's a seminary there, and you know, so it's a, it's a Presbyterian uh, place. All right, but unfortunately, the Southerners argued that Abraham was a slave owner. Is this, these arguments sound familiar? He did not free his slaves, but he circumcised them. <laughs> a little detail. Law of Moses only regulated slavery. Christ commended slaveholders and received them as believers. I don't know about that as a thin argument, but he didn't challenge them, I guess. Paul told slaves to obey their masters. There it is again. Paul told slaves to be content and not change their situation. In both cases, the runaway slaves in the Old Testament, Hagar and Onesimus, they were commanded to return. All right, so they got in a big argument and it all went down, and the southern part split. And what year was that that they reunited? Yeah. In the 80s. Yeah, yeah it was in the 80s sometime, because they built a big building downtown. <laughs> Funny perspective on things. <laughs> Presbyterians on slavery today, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, the, ah, the General Assembly of Presbyterian Church USA convened a roundtable from among its ministries to address human trafficking together with synods, presbyteries, and local congregations. And I gave you some reinforcements. This is, this is uh, something published by them. And let me push one more. Yeah. So I, this, I've already sent this out to you. And it's in your mailbox. Yeah, it's on the website. Uh, you can go down there and you can see there's a 40-page booklet put out by the Presbyterians on how you can make a difference, how you can help. And also, I put a link to the Presbyterian Church policies, so you can read those as well. And this is a picture from, uh, actually, a, a first Presbyterian church. I forget which city, but they, were, they had a, like a whole symposium on human trafficking and what to do about it. There's a link to that as well. Also, human trafficking in Ohio, I put an address, um, because our governor has gotten on board with this and realizes it's a huge problem. So there are also resources there. So what am I trying to say? Good question. <laughs> all right, so first of all, if you remember the declaration, it said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all what? Men. Yeah, let's not get too excited about the men thing right now. <laughs> we will, I love the way you said that, all men. <laughs> let's just go with all people. Where are, are created equal and if they are endowed with their creator by certain in unalienable rights, okay? This is called natural law and people like John Locke and Hobbes and others were exploring this idea of whether human beings just naturally have rights as human beings. Okay, now, 
Unfortunately, as Ken Wilber points out in his book, Brief History of Everything, I thought he had a lot of nerve to call a book the Brief History of Everything, but by gosh, I read it. It's a darn good Brief History of Everything. Like, I looked at it and like, he does feminism in four pages. I'm like, you can't, well, I guess maybe he did, because it was, <sighs> but anyway, one of the things that he pointed out, and it just stuck in me, he said, no religion ever made a dent in slavery until the Enlightenment, until the, reg, you know, the population that didn't necessarily identify as Christian or might have identified as Christian, but maybe not Christian like other people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They were more de- deistic Christians, but they decided that it, it's very sad to me. I mean, it's beautiful that we had this moment, right? That we began to think that human beings have rights because they are a being, because they have a body, because they live, they have rights. But it's disappointing how many thousands of years before this starts getting to be current thought. And in fact, if you, <coughs> so only when the Enlightenment thinkers began to promote the idea of natural rights, what Jefferson called inalienable rights, that the church began to step up and speak out against slavery in any great numbers. It was like it took those two things coming together. This idea of a free nation plants this idea that if we're a free nation, how can we have slavery? And that idea begins to grow. Note that in 1818, the Presbyterian Synod used the language of the Enlightenment, not the Bible, interestingly enough. It said it's inconsistent with the laws of God. Now, you could say laws of God is Moses, and you would be correct, but also that's a familiar phrase with natural laws with Enlightenment thinkers. And it's a gross violation of the sacred rights of nature. That's just straight out of Enlightenment discussions. So it's kind of interesting to me whenever change happens, it usually comes from maybe reluctant allies. When Christians and Enlightenment thinkers, and Enlightenment thinkers were humanists, but they weren't necessarily Christian in traditional sense, a lot of them were Unitarians, began to see this is, this is common. This is what we have in common, that this is a free society. This is a free America. But it was very slow to catch on. And it's kind of amazing, isn't it? That there were Christians everywhere that were slow to catch on to this idea. And the third reason they gave, they, they recognized that slavery could not be challenged with specific Christians. Scriptures, it's irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel. And I just put a note down here that Jefferson, as most of us know, he did put in the abolition of slavery in the Declaration of Independence. And then 13 people, (laughs) they all had to agree, and that wasn't going to happen. The southern states, we're not putting that in there. Uh, Another huge moment lost in history, right? A moment when Paul said, no slave or Greek, slave or free. Another moment lost, right? Jefferson had slaves? He had slaves. And people uh, argue that and say, well, but if they'd have put it in the Declaration, would he have gotten rid of his slaves? Sure, I'm sure he would have. But uh, as we know, there were economic and political reasons why slavery existed as well as just any kind of moral justification. All right, so I don't think any sane Christian today would openly support slavery or human trafficking. 
But scripture itself seems to support it more than oppose it, so that makes it tricky, doesn't it? All right, so the issue then is a model for the need to interpret the Bible on principle rather than literal meanings. Yes, if we go with literal meanings, we're stuck. If we go with principle, but that also means that we got some things to think about in terms of if you can allow it for slavery, can you disallow it for gender or for gay rights? Can you say, okay, we go on principles in this case and literal interpretation in this case? I think it's worth thinking about. We also need to recognize that though arguments supporting slavery have lost the day, they still find expression in racist ideologies. I mean, that's just kind of really reckless statement in that site on Reformation's thinking. That's a reckless thing to say, that somehow that you can be the instrument of God's punishment on people. And, and I think racist ideology, systematic racism is still present in our society today, and it echoes this slave mentality, not to mention the whole kind of slave culture that it creates, um, a slave mentality among people that were enslaved. It's very hard to escape, even generationally. Just a whole different world. Not only do Christians need to resist human trafficking, this is just me speaking here, they also need to challenge supposed scriptural justifications for racist ideologies. I think we ought to see them as one piece that somehow racist ideologies are different than a, than a slave perspective, they echo each other. They come from the same source. This idea, once you can own a person, everything goes down here from there, right? And who it is that you think that you can own, that thinking stays even if you're told you can't own them anymore, right? As, as you know too, uh, if you look at the South, what happened? Southerners were told they couldn't own them anymore, Jim Crow. Not to mention, I just watched a video the other day talking about one of the ways that Southerners also controlled um, black people after was you can enslave someone if you arrested them. You lose your rights if you go to prison and you get free laborers. So they created a, a nouveau slave system in the South. It's like, oh man, this is disgusting. So it doesn't just go away because it's outlawed. This absolutely just made me sick, and I'm sorry to end on something that makes me sick, and I'm not going to end on it. I'm going to end on something positive. <laughs> but I do think it's to be informed is the way to reform. Radicalism, <laughs> racialism and human trafficking. In a recent report by the Office of Victims of Crime, Confirmed sex trafficking victims, 40.4% of the victims were African-American. This is almost four times higher than percentage of African-Americans living in the United States, which is the U.S. Census Bureau recently lists is about 13%. The FBI claims that even more surprising statistic for arrests under the age of 18, black children make up 55% of all prostitution-related arrests in the U.S., Okay, so if we're thinking that we're in a post-racial society, are you ready for the next slide? Out of the, I'm sorry, I put that on a dark slide. Of the traffickers interviewed, the majority overwhelmingly believed that trafficking white women would make more money, but trafficking black women would land them with less jail time. Wow. 
This hasn't gone away, people. So let's end on this. What's the first thing Jesus said in his ministry in the Gospel of Luke? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. All right, so I closed here with another link to even better arguments and more biblical principles <laughs> on resistance to slavery. So thank you. To be informed is already a step to reform, isn't it? All right, thanks. Thanks.